So I, I want to start with uh, with a story. Uh, Terry and I live um, right behind the Supreme Court. And on the day that they announced that Ruth Bader, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had passed away, we walked down to just see what was going on. And it was there was there was a lot of reverence, but there was a lot of uh, tension. And it didn't take long before some of the people that were there to pay their respects started um, shouting political slogans, and and there was a lot of emotion. But it seemed more, it almost seemed more religious than than sort of respect for a, a woman who had done fantastic things and lived an incredible life. And it, it dawned on me at that moment that that. Somehow, somewhere in America, the Supreme Court has gotten way too powerful that that the passing away of a single justice, one out of nine, could could create this sort of existential crisis for at least half America. Um, and and that that strikes me as a, as a good starting off point to talk about your new book. I don't know if you planned it this way, but but your new book, Supreme Disorder. Uh, judicial nominations and the politics of America's highest court is a great sort of historic primer on on how we got where we are today, and I'm hoping that you can solve all of our problems. Yeah, the, the hagiography that we have surrounding uh, justices uh, really makes it uh, surreal, and uh, uh, you're right. A lot of the problems we have is because the court has become too important, and each justice, therefore, because there's only nine. Uh, has become too important. And uh, to give everything away right up front, what's different about the way that politics uh, affects uh, the confirmation nomination process, because it's always affected it to some extent. I mean, the president, going back to George Washington, is a politician. Senators are politicians. What's different, and we, we'll, we'll, we'll discuss all that, uh, but what's different now is you have uh, centralization of power in Washington, uh, and a skewing of that power towards the administrative state. So the Supreme Court is ruling on all these major political controversies. Uh, and divergence of interpretive theories that map onto partisan preferences at a time when the parties themselves are more ideologically sorted than they've been since at least the Civil War. So yeah, each one of these precious seats, and we saw the inverse four years ago uh, with Scalia, um, uh, that this is what happens. It's a tremendously fraught battle. And of course, I guess when it's a progressive justice, you also have, you know, supporters are less religious. And so this is their, the closest thing to a saint or, or, you know, Pope that they have. Yeah. It seemed like a, a civic religion and the, you know, all the iconography of, of black robes and like, they're, they're almost like the high priests of deciding truth in the United States. So as a libertarian, it's sort of makes me incredibly uncomfortable that someone chosen for life would would have that sort of power over my life but that's that's how we've gotten here and you you sort of document that and 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 let's start I'm not going to follow a, a logical progression here because that would require too much discipline on my part but um, when what do you think the the tipping point was um, particularly in terms of judicial philosophy that that the Supreme Court became the deciders? You know, they're they're more than an equal branch of government in a lot of ways. Yeah, you can tell uh, different tales. You can use different inflection points uh, in my book, which, uh, like Gaul, is divided in three parts. So you have the past, the the history, basically George Washington through 1968, which is my answer to your question. The second the second half is the present, basically the last 50 years, 68 to now. And the third part is the future, potential reforms and things like that. But I pick 1968, especially in your right to touch upon judicial philosophy. It's not, you know, you know, when did we start having cataclysmic battles? Well, you know, we've sort of had them throughout different times uh, in our past. You know, even George Washington had a nominee rejected. Uh, probably the biggest battle over any nominee was, I'd say, in 1916 with Louis Brandeis. Um, you know, another presidential election year. But 1968, um, when LBJ, right, was a lame, a self-anointed lame duck, decided he wouldn't run for re-election, unpopular due to Vietnam, civil unrest. Uh, and uh, uh, Earl Warren, the controversial chief justice, uh, presided over desegregation, uh, civil rights revolution in various ways, criminal procedure, all sorts of things that 
um, you know, led to the term liberal judicial activism uh, and had bumper stickers and billboards and Pete Earl Warren. He, he announced his retirement and LBJ tried to elevate Justice Abe Fortas, who wasn't just a justice, but was a close confidant of his. I mean, was advising him on where to bomb in, in uh, Southeast Asia, among other things. Uh, and Fortas ran into a buzzsaw. Uh, a bipartisan buzzsaw, I should, I should say, about various ethical concerns, financial uh, things he hadn't declared, plus the cronyism with LBJ. And uh, uh, some people call it the first uh, filibuster of a Supreme Court nominee, but uh, he'd never even had majority support in the Senate. And again, the opposition was bipartisan. But really, it's at that point with Nixon running on, no, I will fill the activist Warren seat with a, with a strict constructionist. And it's really at that point that I'll point to where judicial philosophy took off uh, rather than, you know, one particular issue, be it trust busting or slavery or the formation of the republic or what have you. But uh, judicial philosophy writ large um, and the divergence of the parties on that uh, really, you know, 50 years is where I'd peg it. And and just prior to that, you tell the story of uh, Byron White and and JFK's appointment of him and how uh, White was actually sitting at the hearing uh, doodling because it was it was very much a formality. There was no expectation that the Senate would reject the president's choice. Um, was that more normal before '68? Yeah, and doodling and chain smoking. The the hearing, which took place eight days after he was nominated, and and lasted all of an hour and a half, of which he himself, the nominee Byron White, testified for about 15 minutes, uh, largely about his football career. Uh, certainly the last justice we'll have who uh, played prof a professional sport in the NFL, led the NFL in rushing for that matter, uh, while in law school. Uh, remarkable man. Um, yeah, you know, the hearings, I mean, first of all, hearings didn't start until that tumultuous year of 1916 uh, that I mentioned because it was controversial that Brandeis was not only Jewish, but a big uh, progressive crusader, uh, although Brandeis himself did not testify because that was seen as unseemly for the nominee to present himself. Uh, but hearings didn't become a regular thing uh, until the 50s. Uh, some nominees before then uh, appeared before the Senate, some didn't. Uh, but it became a regular thing in the 50s uh, because Southern Democrats wanted to grill them on their views on Brown v. Board of Education and other civil rights issues. Uh, with White, that didn't become in so much of an issue or a, or a, or a problem. Um, but yeah, his his sort of hearing, which was Kind of perfunctory, maybe a couple of hard questions from a, a random Southern senator, but 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 that was about it. Uh, and then it was when the hearings became televised, uh, and the Democrats went after Robert Bork in '87 that it really turned into what we would recognize now as the modern confirmation process and certainly the modern hearing style. Yeah, it, it strikes me that the borking of Robert Bork, and you you point out that 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 is now a verb, that that very much applies to to the Supreme Court nomination process. Um, but that does seem to be a change, at least in the, the, the politicization of, of the process. And, and maybe they were performing for the cameras, of course. Uh, now, uh, ostensibly, President-elect Joe Biden played a part in that. And, and you, you talk about the, the Biden rule, which we'll get into. But there was that moment where uh, Robert Bork... Um, they, they threw everything in the kitchen sink at him to try to politically destroy him and, and successfully did that. And it, it seems like at that moment, the gloves came off on both sides. Is that fair or is that an exaggeration? Well, it certainly came off on the Democrat side. The, the Reagan White House was not expecting it. I mean, they were on their back foot. Uh, their strategy was to paint Bork as neither a liberal nor a conservative, just like the justice he was nominated to replace Lewis Powell, the, one of the swing votes, for a long time, uh, and you know that the Bork just called them as he see them, as he saw them, uh, that that he was not a an ideologue, uh, almost you know defying reality in in a sense, uh, trying to make him into just uh, you know I have no views on anything. Although the way that he testified was uh, is now kind of Exhibit A of what not to do in the sense that he actually answered in depth all of the senator's questions. I mean it was a a tour de force in terms of you know you could learn a, a whole you know first year, even upper year uh, law school, constitutional law class, just from his five days of uh, of testimony. And he was also being an academic. He was fighting with the senators. He was making sure they understood the nuance of every 
uh, uh, scholarly point he was making. Paul Simon, senator from Illinois, a uh, Democrat uh, who was on the committee, uh, would write in a book that he published right after the Thomas hearing, obviously the next contentious one, uh, that Bork might have squeezed through the committee had the vote been taken before he testified. Uh, but he did himself no favors and was interested in making uh, academic points, debaters' points, uh, rather than gaining votes. And so since then, we know the playbook, and uh, Justice Ginsburg probably kind of patented it, really, really set it out straight, that you try to talk a lot without saying very much. No hints, no previews, not even getting into philosophy because judges should deal in specifics, but can't get into specifics because that might come before me. So uh, that, yeah, the Bork hearings were unique, not because he was rejected. Nixon, after all, had two nominees rejected, but there wasn't this spectacle or this kind of demagogic attack uh, of the same sort. And that's why uh, Bork is really the beginning of the uh, the modern, I guess, ratcheting up of, of tensions and the tit-for-tat escalations between the parties. You know, you, you say that the Republicans were kind of caught flat-footed because the rules changed before their eyes, but it strikes me that that happened again with, with Clarence Thomas and and what he would eventually call a high-tech lynching. They, it, was, uh, it was sort of a personalized uh, character attack on him that I, I don't think was normal uh, prior to that. Yeah, and with, with Bork, it was kind of twisting his words and making it seem that, you know, his, under his uh, uh, philosophy, we would, uh, you know, go back to Jim Crow, we would have mass censorship, we this, the parade of horribles that Senator Ted Kennedy announced on the floor of the Senate 45 minutes after uh, the nomination of Bork. With Thomas, a little bit different. Uh, I mean, Biden uh, uh, played a, an even bigger role. He was chairman both for the Bork and the Thomas hearings, but he really led the, the Thomas hearings, uh, whereas Kennedy and certain others were, were uh, played a, a, a kind of a higher profile role uh, with Bork. Uh, and uh, they didn't really lay a finger on Thomas during the, the first part of the hearing. It's only when Anita Hill came out, uh, you know, parallels to what happened with Brett Kavanaugh more recently, that it was this kind of uh, personal attack. And, and Biden said at the time that he tried to play it straight uh, and ended up pleasing no one. You know, some of the liberals in his party thought that he wasn't strong enough on, on, on Thomas. Uh, and of course, uh, conservatives haven't trusted him since then. And, and fast forward to, uh, to Gorsuch, one of, the, one of the points you make in the book that that I hadn't really considered, but the the all-out war that the Democrats declared on Gorsuch and and really didn't succeed in landing a punch, and and then they went nuclear, the so-called nuclear option. Um, that that was an overplaying of their hand that very much handicapped them when it when it came to trying to do the same thing to um, Kavanaugh. Right. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think that Lindsey Graham, let alone Susan Collins would have gone along with um, the nuclear option, you know, getting rid of the filibuster to only require 50 votes to uh, 50 plus one to approve a, a nominee uh, to replace Anthony Kennedy, the, the, the middle vote, the swing vote with Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, but they didn't face that dilemma because, uh, as you say, the Democrats uh, went too strong against Gorsuch. And I think Schumer then as now the 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 Senate uh, leader for the Democrats, the minority leader, uh, I think he knew uh, all of this calculus, uh, but uh, he was between a rock and a hard place. I mean, there were activists picketing outside his brownstone in Brooklyn. Uh, they wanted uh, they wanted blood uh, after the blocking of Merrick Garland in, in 2016. They wanted every possible uh, weapon uh, thrown at Gorsuch and even though he knew very well, Schumer did, that McConnell would uh, finish what Harry Reid started in getting rid of the filibuster for lower court nominees, he was uh, he was ducked into that uh, into that corner. And so, with 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 Kavanaugh and and now with Amy Coney Barrett, the the Democrats really they had no tools uh, uh, in the in the arsenal. In fact, Nancy Pelosi, obviously in the House, when she was interviewed right after Barrett was uh, nominated, she said, "Well, there." plenty of arrows in our quiver. And she was talking about maybe impeaching someone to slow down the confirmation, although that would have been instantly dismissed in the Senate as well. So there really weren't any uh, arrows in the in the quiver after uh, after Mitch McConnell uh, forced by the Democrats to go thermonuclear, uh, as it were, and, and, and remove that that filibuster barrier. Although, you know, Thomas uh, uh, was only confirmed 5248. Alito 
was confirmed 58-42. So they never reached that 60-vote threshold. Uh, and But the filibuster wasn't really something that was thought of. And that shows how there's further and further escalation uh, over the last 30 years since Bork. Who brought the filibuster to the table was, um, I, I'm struggling with my history here. I know that that Harry Reid uh, very much sort of opened this this can of worms of, of eliminating uh, supermajority votes, but who, who started the fight? After Bush v. Gore, uh, remember when, when uh, the left uh, considered it that the Supreme Court selected Bush rather than him being elected, um, uh, there was a lot of uh, bitterness, a lot of outrage uh, among legal elites uh, on the left. Uh, and it was at a retreat early in 2001 um, where Cass Sunstein, uh, former regulatory czar, my former professor at the University of Chicago, he's now at Harvard, and uh, Lawrence Tribe, a longstanding Harvard professor, uh, came out with this strategy that you should, uh, you meaning Democratic senators, should filibuster Bush's uh, illegitimate lower court nominees. And, and that's, that's where it went. Um, you know, very, from, from Bush's first, I think it was in May of 2001, where Bush uh, had his first slate of 10 or 11 lower court nominees. And most of those ended up being filibustered, most notably Miguel Estrada, who eventually withdrew his name after being failing seven cloture motes, that is, motions, uh, attempts to, to break the filibuster. Uh, because as we, as we learned from uh, leaked documents. Uh, the Democrats didn't want him to be in a position to be elevated as the first uh, Latino justice. Although some dispute about that, Benjamin Cardoso was from Sephardic uh, Jewish extraction in, in in Portugal. So depending on your definition of Hispanic, he might have already been that. But that was that was where the politicking starts. So 2003 with 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 Estrada and and Harry Reid, and uh, 10 years later, of course, it was Harry Reid who got rid of the uh, the, the the filibuster for lower court judges. It's interesting that the the claim that, that Bush was an illegitimate president um, started this fight and, and we're as, as we speak and uh, you know by next week when, when we run the show, maybe maybe there is a declared winner in the in the 2020 presidential election. but um, a lot of people are well, a lot of Democrats are, are uh, uh, eviscerating Donald Trump for for not um, sort of quietly going away and, and challenging the, the legitimacy of some of the votes. What, what's your take on all that? Um, does, does Trump have a right to, to go through this process and make sure that, that votes in Pennsylvania and Michigan and, and all these states are, are legal and proper? Does he have any tools to approach that? Well, he has a right to file whatever uh, cases he thinks uh, are appropriate in, in, in different states. What we're learning from all this, from this go to the mattresses strategy, is that there's really not any evidence uh, or at least not sufficient to uh, overturn margins of tens of thousands of votes. I mean, in Michigan, it's over 100,000. You, you don't you don't change those by finding a box of missing ballots or doing a recount. I mean, that is significant and structural and and. Uh, much greater than anything that uh, Rudy Giuliani can uh, come up with off the top of his head in a in a hearing. Uh, and so, you know, I, I don't necessarily begrudge uh, Trump's legal team in filing cases in different ways or calling for a recount in, say, you know, Wisconsin or, or Georgia, where it is uh, very close, you know, about 10,000. Although, re again, recount can get you several hundred votes. It's not going to get you 10,000. Um, what is, I think, uh, damaging is uh, Trump insisting still that he won, and if it, if he didn't, it's only because of massive fraud. Again, without presenting that sort of evidence, this is not Bush v. Gore, where it came down to 500 votes in one state. It's not even Bush v. Gore times five or six states, because again, the margins are not in the hundreds uh, of votes. So some of the talk and sort of leading his supporters increasingly to think of the eventual result as illegitimate, I think that is uh, that's not good. Uh, although let's let's be clear that the Democrats don't have clean hands either. Uh, four years ago, um, you know the the resistance sprung up and Hillary Clinton, uh, you know, didn't concede and uh, well, I mean she conceded formally, but then kept talking about uh, the problems in the process. And Stacey Abrams, right, uh, also I think still considers herself the governor in exile of Georgia. Uh, yeah. So you know there's plenty of of ill feelings and and. Uh, uh, soiling our democracy to go around. I think if the shoe were on the other foot with Trump leading by 
you know, 30, 40, 50,000 votes in half a dozen states. And, you know, there, there would be litigation as well from the Democrats. It would, you know, look a slightly different perhaps, but, um, you know, very, when you have bitter polarization politically and a low level of social trust with uh, low public confidence in our institutions, uh, this is what you're going to get. And, um, you know, I don't know the way out of it, but certainly part of the impetus for my book is that the Supreme Court has been swept up into the same toxic cloud. And it's like both parties for the past four years. I mean, you know, forget uh, Al Gore in 2000, but but I, f I feel like uh, a lot of the left has called Donald Trump an illegitimate president for the last four years. And and, and by the way, I'm not a huge Trump fan, but I but I find these tactics to be sort of mutually assured destruction where no matter what happened in this election, um, whatever party had succeeded in taking the White House, um, the other party had built this narrative that whatever happens, it's illegitimate and it's it's dangerous and it's fraught with political hypocrisy. And, and you know, taking just one step back, remembering the, the so-called Biden rule, explain what the Biden rule is and explain why nobody means it when they invoke the Biden rule, because it really depends on whose guy is up on the block. Right. In, uh, in uh, June of 1992, uh, Senator and still Judiciary, Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Joe Biden gave a speech on the floor uh, saying that uh, if there's a Supreme Court vacancy before the election, uh, that George H.W. Bush should refrain from making a nominee, making a nomination, and the Senate would not uh, take that person up because it would be a detriment to the country in, in all sorts of ways. Uh, of course, there was no vacancy at uh, that year, and, and Clinton uh, won the election and got two vacancies the, the two next years. But that was uh, obviously brought up again in 2016 when uh, Antonin Scalia died in February of that election year, and um, President Obama, uh, a month later in March, did make that nomination of Merrick Garland. And um, the Senate, uh, Mitch McConnell, said right away, without waiting for the, the eventual nomination, that, that there would be no hearings, there would be no votes, playing playing hardball. So and that, at that point, it came out that the Biden rule and also the Schumer corollary or uh, a reaffirmation of the Biden rule in um, I think this was in 2000, this was July 2007, more than a year before the 2008 election, that, that George W. Bush should not get any more opportunities to fill uh, Supreme Court seats. So, uh, as you said, hypocrisy to go around when historically it really comes down to whether the Senate is controlled by the same party as the White House or not. In presidential election years, uh, well, let me, let me back up, in, overall in our history, uh, when the Senate and the White House are controlled by the same party, the confirmation rate for Supreme Court nominees is about 90 percent. When it's different parties, it's south of 60 percent. And in presidential election years, it's still 90 percent if it's united government, but it's 20 percent if it's divided government. So knowing nothing about 2016, knowing nothing about 2020, uh, you know, forgetting the Biden rule or anything else, just going by that, you would expect to have happened what happened in 2016 with no confirmation and in 2020 with a confirmation. So, um, you know, uh, people change positions based on what's politically uh, expedient. Surprise, surprise, senators uh, flip-flop. But of course, like uh, both parties are are somewhat boxed in by by the activist base that they've helped create that that expects them to to do by any means necessary whatever it takes to stop the other party and it and the thing that came out of all of the bitterness uh, you know Trump was able to nominate successfully uh, three new members of the Supreme Court and and progressives went bananas about that and that's where this narrative came from that well we'll just take the White House and and pack the Supreme Court. Can Joe Biden pack the Supreme Court? Well, it's uh, it doesn't take a constitutional amendment. The Constitution is silent about the size of the Supreme Court. And we've had as few as five and as many as 10 in our history with changes always coming with, you know, not just for pure reasons of the country's growing, we need more justices, but also for political shenanigans, preventing the power of the, the Federalists or the Democratic Republicans, or we can't let Andrew Johnson fill any seats because he's illegitimate, all, all these different reasons in the past. And so it's been six, it's been fixed at nine since 1869. All it would take to change it uh, would be an act of Congress uh, signed by the president. Um, uh, of course, there's still a filibuster for legislation in the Senate, so it would take uh, the the nuclear option or 
you know, whatever kind of uh, weapon they, they come up with analogy to, to, to define what getting rid of the legislative filibuster would be. It looks like that option is now uh, dead on arrival because, of course, at best, uh, the Democrats would be split, uh, the, the Senate would be split 50-50 with Kamala Harris providing the deciding vote. And I've been told by people who are expert in Senate parliamentary procedures that the president of the Senate, meaning the vice president in this scenario, Harris, uh, does not get to vote on uh, to be a tiebreaker on procedural motions. And so there's no way at this point to break the uh, legislative filibuster, even if Joe Manchin, who said that he would not be for getting rid of the filibuster, let alone packing the court, went back on that. So I think we're we're safe for at least two years from any of that talk, which is why it's quieted down. You know, a month ago I was doing interviews and every single time it was all about court packing. Uh, now it, it doesn't look realistic at all. Biden did say that he wants to have a bipartisan or independent uh, judicial reform commission. We'll see if that happens uh, or if anything uh, uh, comes of it. Uh, frequently these blue ribbon commissions are just to, you know, kind of put an issue on the back burner and then, you know, that's very nice. We'll file this report in the circular file and nothing happens to it until there's more political power to do what I actually want to do. It strikes me that that those calls were probably never taken all that seriously by Democrats behind closed doors, but I bet you it did really well in direct mail leading up to the election. And a sort of shameless uh, demagoguery, um, you know, Trump is arguably guilty of the same thing by suggesting to his his uh, most ardent supporters that this election there was there was broad massive fraud. Um, there's no evidence that that's true yet, and you know, we'll we'll see. But this idea that we're going to pack the Supreme Court was was sort of an empty political gesture. Do, do you think? Um, well, I mean, if if the Democrats had won several seats, uh, you know, and and had a, a comfortable margin where, you know, the 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 50th uh, Democratic uh, vote would be not uh, Joe Manchin but someone a little more solid or a little more. Uh, you know, not a swing senator, uh, as it were, uh, then it would have become a, a realistic possibility. I mean, there, there's other things I suppose they could have done. They could have um, uh, packed the lower courts. They still might do that, add more judgeships, which we haven't had new judgeships in, I think, 30 years, or maybe maybe there were a, a few created under Bush, but it's, you know, there, there are a lot of district courts. I mean, not very political, but just like the, the bread and butter of of uh, uh, federal judging uh, that are uh, overworked. And so they, they could do things like that still. But uh, I think this court packing issue inured to the benefit of Republicans. I mean, this is probably one of the reasons why uh, the Republican Party overperformed both in the Senate and in the House is they saw this crazy talk of uh, court packing and whatever else, the Green New Deal, getting rid of the filibuster, we'll do all this stuff, the socialism and all that, that uh, you know didn't help Trump or it helped him Somewhat, not enough, uh, you know, to have those those winning margins, but to do better than the polling was showing. Uh, but it certainly did uh, preserve the uh, the divided government. And indeed, Joe Biden uh, will be the first uh, incoming Democratic president without uh, Democratic control, unified control of Congress since Grover Cleveland, I think, in, in 1888, something like that. So, um, yeah, no, uh, no coattails, no sales. I mean, this is all going to be very negotiated. We could see for the first time since Thomas a confirmation hearing process uh, during a time of, of divided government. Uh, so in, in the abstract, I mean, put aside the fact that it would be Biden and presumably it would be progressive activist judges that he would nominate. Do constitutional scholars that, that believe in limited government have have a opinion about the optimal amount of Supremes on the court. Um, well, I, I take this up in in my book. Uh, if uh, if I were writing on a blank slate, um, you know, designing a new constitution or a new Supreme Court, you might want more than nine. You know, say if you had nineteen, there would presumably be fewer ten to nine decisions than five to four. Uh, each one of those 19 would be, you know, less powerful than each one of nine. So that would diffuse tensions, perhaps. There are some, um, you know, dynamics, you know, the, the, the management consultants will tell you about the decision making in larger groups. But I don't think 19 is you know, or 15 or whatever is so big that uh, it really the system breaks down. So maybe you'd have more. The problem is we're not writing on a blank slate. And so how do you get from what we have now to whatever some platonic uh, uh, mean might might be 
And even if you said that, well, this doesn't take effect for 10 years, well, there's nothing stopping uh, that Congress eight years from now seeing the writing on the wall from changing it back or you know, growing it further. Uh, so, I, I, you know, I don't think there's an optimal number uh, that way. Um, term limits might help turn, you know, uh, 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 turn down the heat a little bit, at least if it would prevent uh, these morbid health watches over octogenarian justices or politically timed retirements. And you'd have, you know, the regularity. Each presidential term would have two uh, during non-during uh, election years. Um, you know, you know that when you're voting for president for Senate, that you're going to get two in the next uh, in the next four years. But we have to be clear that that would not change the ideological balance of the court. It wouldn't change its power and the significance of its rulings. Uh, and that's why, you know, I'm amenable to term limits. Uh, but the, to really, you know, change the dynamic and these big fights that we have, it has to be more substantive, more more about the product than the process. All of these reform proposals, whether with twiddling with the, the number, the term limits, you know, how you ask questions of them, all these different things um, are rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Uh, and the Titanic is the ship of state. That is, we've had a decades long progression of federalization of power and within the federal government, a skewing of power away from the legislative branch. Congress punts its power, lets the executive, let the administrative agencies uh, write all the rules by which we actually live our lives. And that makes the court ever more uh, important. And so unwinding that, enforcing federalism, separation of powers, making the court less important, you know, not totally unimportant. It would still have to decide individual rights issues. Abortion wouldn't go away. Guns, you know, all these sort of, you know, the culture war stuff wouldn't go away. But at least you wouldn't have the Obamacare type cases. The, you know, Texas wants this kind of environmental regulation. California wants another. You know, why is Washington making that decision for, for everyone at the at the same time? But uh that's ultimately the, the dynamic that we have. That or kind of a, a reshuffling of the parties so that judicial philosophies don't neatly match up to uh, you know, political ideologies. Yeah, it strikes me that, that reforms of the court are really treating symptoms and not, not problems. And, and you can go all, all, the, exactly right. go all the way back to uh, George W. Bush signing campaign finance legislation, and I believe at the time saying, I know this is unconstitutional, but I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah, he's basically admitting that he violated the oath that he took. Absolutely. And and that cavalier attitude is, let's just just let the court take care of it. And and I think conservatives and, and certainly libertarians put a lot of stock in in the Supreme Court challenge of Obamacare only to discover that that Roberts really was going to make a political decision and not not a judicial one in that case. I think the you know I've spilled plenty of ink and plenty of tears over Roberts's decision uh, in NFIB versus Sebelius, that first Obamacare case, eight years ago. But uh, the irony here is that um, in doing what he did, thinking that he needed to uphold Obamacare to punt it back to the political process in that 2012 election year. Uh, to decide the the health care laws future um, in thinking about the court's legitimacy, he really uh, uh, decreased uh, in the public's eyes the court's legitimacy in that way. It would have been one thing if Anthony Kennedy had simply agreed with the liberals and say, yeah, there are no limiting principles on what the federal government can do. At that point, it becomes a, a political battle. What kind of judges do you want? Do you want originalism and textualism, or do you want this free ranging, you know, there's no constitutional limit to federal power kind of theory? Uh, instead, because as you said, he made a, a small p political decision, uh, Roberts really told the people, uh, you know, look, uh, I'm not going to uphold the constitution if you if you want uh, if you want that sort of thing you need to find your own strong man you know it's not in the law and so and so they did uh, I think I think that decision contributed to our populist populist moment yeah and I, I'd like his rationale was to protect the court but I feel like he's made it now ground zero in every philosophical and ideological battle that that we have moving forward the the uh, and, and another, so I, I picked on George W. Bush. So let me let me pick on on Joe Biden for a second. Um, his campaign made it very clear that one of the first things that they would do should they take office is pass a national mandate that people would have to wear masks. Is that constitutional? Uh, no, no. The federal government does not have a general what's called police power to regulate for health and safety. 
There are certain statutes, the Defense Production Act we heard about in the early pandemic about, um, you know, updating contracts to get more ventilators made and more PPE and, and things like that. Uh, there are certain, you know, control of the CDC and, and things that are that are federal programs. Federal government could have shut down airports and interstate highways, for that matter, things that actually are under the, the purview of the federal government. But uh, a mask mandate is not that, which is why when we had the lockdowns or shelter in place orders, you know, essential businesses versus non-essential, all of that stuff, uh, that came from governors and mayors uh, because states do have police powers um, uh, for the general health and safety. So I think what uh, Biden uh, or some of his advisors or, or those in the media who talk about a national mask mandate, it's largely shorthand for trying to convince and cajole the governors to put in the mandates. Now, there are some sticks, you know, if a state, if a governor decides not to do it, could the president withhold certain funds that go towards, say, uh, you know, COVID uh, recovery, that go towards vaccines, or uh, enforce limits on interstate uh, commerce, interstate transportation, uh, isolate the particular state, literally nobody can uh, go in and out. Uh, those kinds of extreme measures might be possible to try to uh, coerce a state to take it. But at the end of the day, I haven't even seen, you know, the most radical uh, uh, left-wing uh, legal person, I'm not, I don't mean activist, but professor or something, argue that there is a direct power to order uh, a mask mandate by Joe Biden uh, or a, a shutdown or something like that. Yeah, there is, there's a lot of uh, power as, as you were alluding to, to sort of bully governors and cities into submission um, because when the you know when the Surgeon General and the CDC and NIH and and the government's health advisors are all saying that if you don't do this, people will die. You can imagine the political implications, uh, and we're seeing this sort of demagoguery now. Um, and by the way, I, I I mentioned withholding funds. Uh, NFIB, the that Obamacare case, the undercard issue below the individual mandate was transformation of regulations having to to. Uh, conditioning existing Medicaid funding on agreeing to expand Medicaid under Obamacare. That was struck down by a seven to two vote. Uh, and so one thing that Joe Biden will not be able to do is say, hey, put in these mandates or you're not going to get your transportation funds. You're not going to get your education funds. You're not going to get your your Medicaid funds because that under that NFIB precedent would be uh, unconstitutionally coercive. So at least there are some limits there. Yeah. I mean, it. The, the the demagoguery itself seems to be working right now. The yeah, it's yeah. you know politically it appears to be easier for um, governors and mayors to to sort of fall in line even if they don't want to, just so they don't get blamed for for someone getting sick. And it's a it's a dilemma that that I'm still scratching my head about. And but I, but I want to ask you like you mentioned that that the states have tremendous amount of power when it comes to COVID lockdowns and mass mandates and things like that. And I live in a district of Columbia. Um, before she locked down the district, uh, much like a number of other blue states did at the time, I didn't even know what her name was. She, she didn't uh, ostensibly matter that much to my daily life as a resident of the district of Columbia. And at the time I thought to myself, it's, is it possible that, that a mayor has the power to call up the National Guard to police uh, stay-at-home orders, which is something she certainly talked about doing. Um, do individual rights matter in a pandemic, or do these governors have a blank slate? They do. Uh, Cato's actually put out uh, a lot of papers on this. So we have a, a new department or a new kind of area of research called pandemics and policy. And so I wrote the one about, about police powers, which does touch on individual rights claims both under federal and state constitutions. And there, you know, there's a lot of leeway. Um, there especially was a lot of leeway in the early days of the pandemic when we didn't know the epidemiology, we didn't know very much. Now the, the, it's kind of a sliding scale, the calculus is different. It's not a blank check. Uh, it's not, you know, you know, in a hurricane, you can evacuate people, force evacuation from the coast. In a pandemic, you can't evacuate people from the coast because that has nothing to do with anything. Uh, similarly, uh, in a pandemic, you can, you know, enforce social distancing or, or masks or, or something like that, but you can't say, uh, oh, I don't know, you can never be, you can, you can never go outside your home or, or, or something like that. Uh, you know, it, it, things have to be reasonable, things have to pass the smell test, and they also have to be applied equally. So, 
Um, you know, there, there are a lot of restrictions on gun stores, for example, that were invalidated because the same types of shopping or practices or regulations were allowed for, well, even for liquor stores, let alone grocery stores. Uh, and there you have, there's no, there's an equal protection issue before you even get to assertions of fundamental rights. Similarly, uh, there should not be a problem with drive-in churches. If you just drive to a parking lot and you want to pray communally in your own car, you know, that's very different than all being indoors with no air circulation. So judges have, you know, there's a lot of deference, but there's still, there's limits to what uh, the courts uh, will allow. So uh, uh, perhaps most recently, the, the governor of Michigan, Whitmer, um, was uh, uh, knocked down a peg by the Michigan Supreme Court on this question of whether or not she had this sort of broad-based power and they, they told her she didn't, and then she proceeded to do it anyway. Um, <laughs> what, what does that even mean? I'm not familiar with the very latest uh, development out of Michigan. I know in some states, I know in Wisconsin, they, they, the, the state Supreme Court threw out, uh, this is a couple of months ago now, the entirety of the lockdown because it was done by some health department deputy official who didn't have under the state's own administrative uh, you know, powers uh, the authority to do that. And so they're enforcing their own state laws and state constitutional separation of powers uh, uh, issues. I think similar things were happening in Michigan where the, the legislature, I think, had to uh, authorize her to take more powers or or something like that. But there is that, you know, just because we're in a crisis or a serious situation doesn't mean that we're in an emergency, right? When you have cancer, that's very serious, but you don't get it treated at the ER typically. So similarly with emergency powers, uh, lockdown powers, that sort of thing, we're into month eight or is it nine of the pandemic? Legislatures can and should act if they want to. If they don't, under many states' uh, constitutions, the government or can't just say that, well, I'm creating a new, you know, granting myself more powers out of thin air. So when uh, Senator Mike Lee was on the show, uh, we spent a significant amount of time sort of pointing back to the legislature. And I think the same thing would be true at the state legislature level. Um, you sort of scratch your head and you wonder um, who sort of defends the Constitution when the court won't do it and the executive branch is sort of running rampant uh, doing all sorts of uh, at least extra constitutional things. And it strikes me that the burden always falls back on the legislature to rein that in through the power of the purse. Um, I assume that even Whitmer can't do whatever she wants if it's if it's defunded. I'm hoping that there's some sort of way to rein this in. Yeah, I mean, th there's a vicious cycle where everyone defers. It's like uh, two or even three wolves uh, Arguing over with arguing with a sheep about what's for dinner, uh, and uh, if the courts, this is part of the the dynamic that that's affecting Supreme Court battles because if the courts are allowing Congress, uh, and this have the same dynamic happens at the state level, to just delegate all of its powers to the executive branch because they don't want to bear the political accountability for certain unpopular things that 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 happen. Uh, if the courts aren't there to say, no, you are not allowed to delegate your legislative power to anyone, executive branch or, or, or otherwise, that is your, that is your power. Uh, and what James Madison and the other framers of our separation of powers structure failed to anticipate was the party system, whereby rather than jealously guarding their legislative prerogative, uh, Congress or state legislatures uh, are happy to punt that responsibility, either just because, as, as I said, the, that way the bureaucrats get blamed when they put in uh, uh, regulations that are uh, unpopular or hurt people, or because they're from the same party as the governor or the president. And so, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're not going to oppose uh, that executive branch when it aligns with their ideological views. Yeah, but, but quite contrary to their their pledge to defend and protect the Constitution. You, it's, it's typical for partisans, Republicans and Democrats to simply say, I'm siding with my president. He's my president. Um, he calls the shots. And that's, that's very contrary to, to how this whole separation of powers of things was supposed to work out. Absolutely, which is why it's doubly uh, infuriating when the courts uh, getting one of these legal challenges to that kind of dynamic say, no, 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 we're just going to defer to the political branches. We're going to, you know, they, they must have considered their constitutional duties and it's a close call. We'll just defer to their evaluation of, 
of the legal niceties of it. I mean, well, what are you there for? Uh, are you there to be potted plants? I mean, that's that, that, that's why it's, uh, you know, I'm against the uh, what lawyers call the rational basis test. That is, if, if any if there's any conceivable reason why uh, a legislature or a, or a, an executive might put in a given rule, then courts will defer to it rather than uh, putting the onus on the government to justify its restrictions of people li- people's liberty. So let me ask you the question that I don't know the answer to, and I'm hoping that you do, but we we go back and forth, people that believe in limited government, constitutional conservatives, libertarians, and we, we look at the um, sort of corruption, inability, unwillingness to do their jobs in all three branches of government. Um, what do we what do we do about it? What's our job to try to get things back in whack? I mean, civic education. Um, you know, it's it's tough. At the end of the day, you know, Thomas Jefferson called the Constitution a parchment barrier. There's no Deus ex machina. There's no you know super guardians that'll step in when uh, when the fallible human beings that are running the government are are out of whack. Um, there are no. You know, to, to invoke uh, James Madison's uh, Federalist 51, uh, we're not governed by angels. You know, if, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels govern men, then we'd have a perfect government to police uh, us, uh, you know, uh, imperfect uh, creatures. Uh, but uh, in a system uh, run by men over men uh, and women, of course, uh, you know, you first have to check the guardian. You have to you know, empower the guardians to protect our liberties and then check them when they when they run amok and and when that breaks down i mean if the people don't want to enforce their own protections you know there's there's not much that 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 can be done and for that reason i think jefferson supported having a revolution in a or at least a new constitution he wasn't talking about a bloody war uh, all the time but every generation you know every 20 years 25 years we recommit to whatever the structural values of the society are um you know i, I think we're failing in that at, at there there was talk about the blood of tyrants, but I think that was just rhetorical flourish. Um, so, so do some shameless promotion. Um, if, if we got to get to this point where the, the citizens who really, who really control whether or not, um, government acts within its, within its limits, um, it's, it strikes me that all of us need to school up a little bit. Um, and we, we could be despondent about, about the public schools and the, the general, unawareness of the constitutional rules of the game, or we could uh, give people who have an ability to find that stuff for themselves now um, better tools to do that. And obviously, you've, you've written your new book, um, and I assume that's available at all appropriate booksellers. That's right. Uh, whether online or in person, I've actually personally visited all of the Barnes and Nobles in D.C. and Northern Virginia within reasonable driving distance of where I live in, in Falls Church. I think I hit 13 of them all together uh, and signed all the copies there, which means that they count as sales because they can't return them once they're signed by the author. But it's kind of nice. Uh, it's, it's basically the only part of a normal uh, authorship process that I've gotten to enjoy since we can't do these in-person signings or, or, or what have you. Um, uh, yeah, you know, if, if people, if you're, if your listeners, if your viewers buy it, uh, I'm happy to send a signed book plate that they can stick in there. Uh, and it's available, you know, if you listen to books on, in the car while driving, it's available on Audible or on CD, it's available on your Kindle. Uh, you know, you might want to, you know, holidays are coming up. It's a perfect Thanksgiving gift, let alone Christmas and, and, and what have you. And I tell you what, uh, Matt, uh, if you go to supremedisorder.com, not only can you find links to buy it, uh, if you don't like Amazon, there's other places, independent booksellers, links there. Uh, but for free, you can download a 20-page statistical historical appendix uh, of all the Supreme Court nominations and some of the lower court shenanigans that have gone on the last couple of decades. So you can really nerd out on that and be very popular in your next uh, you know, virtual cocktail party. Speaking of, of nerding out, which um, libertarians are always guilty of, uh, you also oversee an annual review of Supreme Court cases. I think you've been doing this now for 11 years. Talk about that resource as well. Yeah, the, the Cato Supreme Court Review, which uh, this coming year, next year, will be its 20th uh, volume. I edited uh, 11 of them, and I've now been publisher for uh, three. Uh, Trevor Burris, my colleague at Cato, is, has been the editor for the last couple. Um, and uh, we take the, the, the biggest, most significant cases from the previous term from a constitutional and statutory perspective, 
and uh, commission uh, articles by leading uh, scholars, practitioners, judges, as well as having one article uh, looking ahead. And we make we try to make them uh, readable. It's hard sometimes with uh, law professors, but uh, our aim is that it's not just an academic tool, but anyone who otherwise consumes Cato or think tank uh, policy uh, analyses will want to learn about you know the latest decision on whether it's affirmative action or guns or class actions or or what have you. Uh, and we limit the uh, how long they can be. We limit the number of footnotes. Again, we really try to you know make this a, a readable thing. So if you want, if you know nothing about what happened in the Supreme Court in the last year, you can learn what you need through uh, picking up this book. Constitutional lawyers who speak English. I love it. It's uh, it may be a unicorn, but I'd I'd love to see that. I, this is the rule number one that I teach my incoming associates. We've we've had for a while now, I guess about a decade, a legal associates program at Cato. Any law students watching this, if you're going to be graduating, please uh, apply. I think every year the applications are due in February. Uh, you come with us for a year, your first year out of law school or after clerking or what have you, and uh, you write amicus briefs, you work on this Cato Supreme Court review, you write op-eds, you help me prepare for speeches and my colleagues as well. It's a, it's a great opportunity for, for young lawyers. But the first thing I, t I teach them is uh, our audience is more than other lawyers, let alone law professors or you know technocrats. We want uh, even our briefs that go to courts to be read by the media, by potential sponsors, by people wanting to educate themselves. And so write in English. Uh, in fact, when I taught legal writing at GW, George Washington University, about a decade ago, uh, I would assign uh, Hemingway short stories, inaugural addresses, articles from Sports Illustrated. Look, because I said, look, I can teach you the structure of how to write a brief or a legal memo. That's not hard. What's hard is being a good writer. And so I sent them that. And then finally, they, they're like, well, can't you give us any examples of legal briefs or memos or what have you. And yeah, I'd send them John Roberts's when he was one of the leading lawyers in the country, a leading Supreme Court advocate. And you know what? What's different between a John Roberts brief and kind of a run-of-the-mill appellate brief? They're simpler, shorter words, shorter sentences, shorter paragraphs. It's not because he's a dummy. It's because he's smart. Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you, Isla. And I, I look forward to continuing this conversation as uh, Joe Biden attempts to put a dozen new radical progressives on the Supreme Court. <laughs> yeah, next year uh, in person, uh, as the toast goes. Yeah. Cheers. Thanks for watching Kibbe on Liberty. By now, you know this is the most important event of your week. So make sure you subscribe on YouTube. Click the little bell so you get notifications. Kibbe on Liberty, mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.